We have worshipped God this morning. You have sung beautifully. It's been such an encouragement. Appreciate Giff and the song choice that he has made. It's been very intentional, and I appreciate that to go along with our thoughts this morning. We have offered up worship to God this morning. We have remembered His Son, Jesus, in the communion. We have prayed, we have sung, and now it's time to hear from Him. And there's a message that God wants us to hear this morning that has nothing to do with me, so please try to look past any imperfections in my life or in my preparation or my delivery and hear what God has to say to us this morning. I spent two hours preparing a PowerPoint that I'm not going to use because as I practiced this lesson, I realized that the very best way to deliver it and to hear it is with an open Bible and with an opened mind and an open heart. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, you will need it. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 25. We are in the midst of a series of messages called We Are Israel, where we're taking a look at the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jews, and we are noticing some things about them that compare to our experiences as God's people as Christians today. We have had some good lessons and some challenging messages so far, and this morning has been particularly challenging for me. I sat around with Giff and Billy a a few weeks ago, and, and I assigned myself this topic not really knowing where it was going to take me and not really knowing where the application was going to lead. And the title of this lesson is called Wrestlers. Wrestlers. And I've wrestled with it. And I continue to wrestle with it, and I believe you will as well. And I've wrestled especially with how to apply it to an audience of this size. So I figured the very best thing to do is tell you this story. Let the Bible unfold it for us and then perhaps lead us into some general application. But I believe it may become clear to you, as it has for me, what this lesson needs to do and be in your life. We come in our series, We Are Israel, to study actual Israel, the man, more commonly known as Jacob. And to fully appreciate the text where where I'd really like to focus, which is chapter 32, we have to back up. If we skip to chapter 32 and talk about what I intend to talk about, we almost skip to the climax. We we skip to the the really exciting, uh, pivotal part of Jacob's life, and I, I don't think that's the wisest way to do it. So I want to back up all the way to his birth. It's incredibly important to notice what is happening in Genesis chapter 25. Isaac and Rebekah have been married for 20 years and she's barren. She can't have any children. And God miraculously allows her to conceive and and as as these babies grow in her womb and she knows nothing about how many there are or who they are or what gender they are, they begin to struggle within her. The Bible says. And she begins to wonder what is going on. If it's going to be like this, why is this happening? And she inquires of the Lord and the Lord says, well, there's more going on in there than you think. Two nations, Genesis 25 verse 23 says, two nations are in your womb. 
And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So there's something happening here before Jacob is ever born that's bigger than him. Something happening in this, this pregnant mother that is much, much bigger than her or the children that she is about to give birth to. When her days to give birth were completed, verse 24, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. This is very important. I want you to imagine it's almost like a horror movie. This baby reaches up and grabs the heel of the baby that came before him and tries to either pull him back or pull himself out. And, and the parents look at this and they say, well, that's weird. Let's just name him that. The word Jacob, the name Jacob. And this is when names actually meant something. It means heel grabber. It means supplanter. It means deceiver. It means he cheats. It means he overreaches. It means I want what you have. And if I can't get it naturally, I'll just grab onto you and take it from you. Isn't that unusual? That's his name. We're just going to name you cheater, deceiver, and heel grabber. How would you like that as you grew up? It's not a great name, is it? It's just Jacob to us. I mean, you might know a few Jacobs. I do, but I don't think of them this way. But they did from the time that he was born. Actually, from before he was born. And it doesn't get... Much more Andy Griffith from here. When the boys grew up, verse 27, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Maybe you've experienced this in your family. I hope you haven't. You got two very different children, and dad really likes one of them, and mom really likes the other and maybe there's, it's even true that they really don't like, they don't favor the one that they don't like. How healthy is that? If you grew up like that, you know that that's very unhealthy, isn't it? That's a, that's a, a seed for dysfunction in a family. Well, I prefer Esau. Well, I prefer Jacob. And it's, it's more than that. Did you see the word that the Bible uses here? Isaac loved Esau and, and Rebekah loved Jacob, and the implication is he loved them more. He loved them more. There was favoritism. There was dysfunction in this family. The Bible tells us what happens next with Jacob, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. These boys grow up. Esau's a skillful hunter. Jacob is a 
kind of a mama's boy and, you know, lives in tents. You know, Esau's kind of the jock, if you like that word, and Jacob's kind of the gamer. He certainly played Esau. He waits. He's probably a very shrewdly opportunistic in this regard. He waits till Esau comes back from a very exhausting hunting trip and just so happens to have some food cooking. It's almost as if he's planned this. Planned to grab another heel. Planned to do a little more cheating and deceiving. That's who I am after all, right? You're hungry, Esau. Oh, okay. Sell me your birthright and I'll, I'll give you something to eat. And, and Esau, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 and 17, he's so unholy, he's so profane, he's so ungodly, he thinks so little about anything other than what he really wants to do right now that he says, okay, I'll do it. I don't care. I'm about to die. What good is this birthright? The answer is it's actually a lot of good. You're actually trading something that's much more valuable than a bowl of soup. Depending on where you look and depending on who you ask, the birthright was a tremendous advantage. Some say a double portion of the inheritance. Some say a positional. It would put you in a certain position in the family of authority. Some say there was, there was possessions that would come along with it. That, that this was the covenantal Promise. It's hard to tell really the difference in some ways between the birthright and the blessing, but believe me when I tell you this was not nothing. This would be like me going into Panera Bread and saying, I sure am hungry, but I don't have any money. Well, we'll take your house. Would you sign over the, the deed to your house? I'll give you a bowl of tomato soup and a bread bowl. Mm, I'm not that hungry. But Esau was. He cared so little, he placed so little value on what was due to him, physically, spiritually, etc., that he just traded it for a bowl of soup. He sat down, he ate it, he got up, and oh well. And that's probably why God spiritually sort of disqualified him before he was ever born and said, you're not going to get this covenantal blessing. We're going to put this through your younger brother and not you. Makes sense, doesn't it? But let me ask you this. Do you really approve of Jacob's behavior either? I mean, if he was your kid, would you say, good job, buddy. You really stole that birthright. I mean, the way you did that was so loving and so kind. We try to teach our kids to be nice to each other, don't you? If, if my child comes up to me and says, you'll never believe it. I just cheated my sister out of everything she's ever going to have. Well, I'm not proud of that. But that's exactly what's happened here. So Jacob is living up to his name in a very big way. And this is a turning point for his relationship with Esau. In fact, Esau is later going to look back on this in chapter 27, verse 36. He's going to say, Jacob has cheated me these two times. And this is the first of those times. He's cheated me. He's a cheater. That's who he is. That's his name. He just keeps doing it. So this is a turning point, but boy, does it get worse. Flip over to chapter 27. We go from a turning point to a breaking point. Because in chapter 27, when Isaac was old, verse 1, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. 
Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field, and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, interestingly, Isaac is not about to die. He lives to be 180 years old, according to Genesis 35, 28, and 29, and that's decades away from the event in this chapter, and I think that's interesting. He doesn't die right away for a long time. But Rebecca overhears this. She was listening, and evidently Isaac was doing this away from Rebecca and away from Jacob. He's trying to arrange this blessing, and Rebecca hears and says, well, we're not going to let that happen. And you remember the rest of this chapter. I encourage you to read it. They plot together, her and Jacob, the pair of them, as they probably have done many times. They plot together and they, they come up with this deceitful plan to trick and, and lie to Isaac and to steal. There's no other way to look at it. To steal this blessing that he intends to give to Esau. Now, some will say, well, Rebecca had the right to do this. This is what she should have done because Isaac was about to give the blessing to the wrong son. You could make a case for that. There's also some who, who look at the blessing that he gave Esau and they compare it to the one that he gives Jacob in chapter 28, the first few verses, and they say, no, these are two different blessings. Isaac never intended to give him the blessing. He was just giving him a blessing. I don't know which one of those things is right. You can look it up. You can study it for yourself. You can be as confused as I am about it. But here's the bottom line. Here's what I do know. Here's what Rebecca knew. Jacob knew. Isaac knew and Esau knew. Jacob got everything. Esau got nothing. How about that? After all the debates, I'm sure that Jacob and Esau didn't think, well, I wonder what commentators will say about this thousands of years from now. They didn't care. You took everything from me. This is a breaking point for Esau. Jacob gets it all deceitfully through trickery. And once again, there he goes, grabbing heels, deceiving, cheating, supplanting, doing the very thing he's been doing since he's been born. Skip ahead, Esau is angry, as you can imagine. Verse 41 of chapter 27, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So the seeds of dysfunction, those seemingly minor things, have borne some bitter fruit, haven't they? Now we hate our brother and we're issuing murderous threats. We are uh, afraid and, and we are divided and we are deceiving one another. And Rebecca realizes, I, I can't lose both of my children. So Jacob, you're going to have to leave. You've got to flee. You've got to get out of here. Your brother is going to kill you when your father dies and, and I can't handle that. You've got to go take a wife from the daughters of my brother Laban and Pat and Aram. Go, get out of here. And he does. In chapter 28, Jacob flees his family. He leaves this situation unresolved. There's no conversation between him and Esau. There's no apology. There's no making it right. There's no amends. He just leaves. And he basically starts another life. 
And it's interesting that as he's journeying in verse number 10 of chapter 28, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So the next few verses tell us that he, he got up, he built a memorial, a pillar, and he made a, a promise to God. He entered into a, a relationship with God here in this particular place on his way to Paddan Aram to live with his uncle Laban. This is a turning point, isn't it? God appears perhaps for the first time to this young man and says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to fulfill the promises that I made to your father and grandfather through you and your offspring. I will be with you. So chapters 29 through 31 is the story of Jacob's second life, if you will. His time with Laban, he, you remember he, he meets this daughter of Laban named Rachel and he just falls madly in love with her and, and he is willing to work for seven years to marry this woman. And after seven years, Laban tricks him and gives him his other daughter, Leah, who is, I don't know if I'm understanding the Bible right, but perhaps not as attractive. Either way, he didn't pick her. And Laban says, well, we just don't do that around here. And I just waited seven years to tell you. And so Jacob is like, well, I hate that, but I do want to marry Rachel. So I'll work seven more years to marry her. And if you read the scriptures and you look at chapter 31, verse 28, Jacob's time with Laban, whether it was the 14 years for these two wives or whether it was afterwards just working for Laban, is a 20-year period. It's, a, it's another life. It's a generation he marries these two women. He has 11 children. Between these two women and their handmaidens, 11 children, he amasses his own fortune. He deals with his own problems. He has people tricking him now, so he kind of knows how that feels. But in his mind, maybe, maybe he's thinking, well, at least I'm not back home dealing with that. I've made a new life for myself and you know, relatively speaking, things are going pretty well. I've, I've managed to move past my mistakes and my sins. Well, then God tells him in chapter 31, verse number 3, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. And I can imagine his heart started beating just a little bit faster when he heard that, can't you? 
So he tells his wives and gets all of their stuff together and they flee Laban. Now Laban's not happy about it. He chases him down. And they have to have a discussion. They have to come to an agreement. God has to intervene and personally tell Laban, you leave that guy alone. And so he does. And Jacob is in between lives. He's now left Laban. He's left the place where he formed this new life. And now his destination is clear. I'm going back home. And verse chapter 32 brings us to at least the chapter where our climax happens. Jacob went on his way, verse 1, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Jacob is thinking, okay, this is going to be all right. God is, is with me every step of the way. But he's not quite sure about this upcoming meeting with Esau. So Jacob sent messengers, verse 3, before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. I'm coming home, brother. I'm not going to mention what happened between us, but I'm coming home. And I'm hoping that everything's okay. And the messengers returned to Jacob. And I want you to put yourself in Jacob's position when this message comes back and how anxious you are to get it. You ever sent a text and wondered, when am I going to hear back? And it doesn't happen immediately. But when it comes in, you get a little flutter like, oh, what's it going to be? Well, there's what they say. We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Hmm. Does that sound good? Let me tell you something. Esau having 400 men with him is not like you and your entourage. I know some of y'all roll deep. I mean, when you go somewhere, you, you got the whole posse with you. But not you don't have this. This is a large private army. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 14 when Abram had 318 trained men in his camp? And do you remember how many people they went up against? They went up against... Four kings and their armies, and they beat them. Esau has 400 men with him, and he doesn't have anything to say to Jacob. He just sends these messengers back. I'm coming to see him. Well, the Bible tells us what we could probably already guess in verse number 7. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Well, duh. It ought to say duh right there. Don't you think? I believe I'd be greatly afraid and distressed too after what I had done to my brother. And he's certainly afraid. What would you do in this situation? I don't know about you, but I think I'd be like, well, I wonder if Laban would be all right if I just went on back. I wonder if God would mind if I just didn't do what he told me to do. That's got to be running through his mind. But, but something pushes him forward. But, but how does he move forward? This is what he does. And you'll have to pardon this expression. He makes a prayer sandwich. 
And this is what I mean by that. Here's the first thing that he does in verse number 7. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. In other words, i got to do something about this. I've got to put some things in place to protect myself and my family. Let me strategize a little bit. And then he prays. So you've got the piece of bread, which is my efforts. And then let's put the prayer in the middle. O God of my father Abraham, verse 9, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. From the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You can hear him struggling with it. God, don't you remember? Please tell me you remember that you said you'd be with me. Please tell me you remember that I was going to come back to this land. That's still true, right? So after I put the, the bread and the prayer, let me put some more bread. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he says to his servants something like this, Hey, I want you to take these to my brother, and I want you to take them one at a time. I want him to see the goats, and then I want him to see the, the ewes, and then I want him to see these. And, 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 and hopefully, this is what the Bible says. Look down there at verse 20. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. That's the prayer sandwich. You ever made one? Well, I love a good prayer sandwich. Let me do everything I can do and let me pray a little, but then let me get back to doing everything I can do because I'm not sure about that prayer. I'm not sure if it's going to work because this is real trouble, right? This trouble has a name and he's covered with hair and he hates me. Okay, so, so this is what Jacob does and, and I want you to follow along. The same night, verse number 22, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Now I want you to think, can you remember a time like this? Everybody's gone. It's quiet. All the things that you were trying to do to distract yourself from what was going on, they're, they're finished. Sun's gone down. Kids have gone to bed. Friends are gone. And it's just you. It's you and all the stuff you can't send away. You ever been there? You're alone with the decisions you made. And the people you know you're going to have to face and the, and the consequences that are marching toward you with 400 armed men 
You've probably been there. If you haven't, you probably will be. Jacob is scared and alone. And then something very unusual happens. It doesn't seem unusual to you because you've heard about it since you were in preschool. But believe me, it's unusual. When a man shows up and wrestles you all night. When's the last time somebody just came up to you and said, would you like to wrestle all night? Who are you? I'm just, I'm just here to wrestle. That's odd, isn't it? Jacob is alone. Somebody shows up and says, let's wrestle. And so they do. And they wrestle how long? Until the breaking of the day. They wrestle all night. And the angel, the man, did not prevail against him. You remember that Jacob is no slouch physically. He's not Esau, but he's no slouch. Chapter 29, verse 10, when he meets Rachel, do you remember what he did? There was a stone in front of the well. And, and it's typically, uh, the Bible describes it as a large stone, verses 2 and 3. And it's usually rolled away by shepherds, plural. And Jacob rolls it by, by himself. Probably because he had a crush on that girl. And that gives you superpowers. But anyway, he's no slouch physically. And he wrestles this man until the breaking of day. And he's not losing. And I, and I think what's going on in Jacob's mind is that he's still thinking... I can beat this. I can manipulate this situation. I can fix it. I can avoid it. And then when that sun comes up, this strange wrestling opponent touches Jacob's hip. It's not a wrestling move. If you try it, you'll still probably lose. He just touches his hip and it goes out of socket. His whole body. You like the way I did that? I promise you that's what happened. He's wrestling and all of a sudden he's not wrestling. He's just holding on to this guy. He's done. This man with one touch incapacitates Jacob physically. He's finished. This match is over. And the man says, notice, verse number 26, let me go for the day has broken. According to this man, that's all there is to it. You're no match for me. I let you think all night that you had a chance to beat me, but you don't, and you never did. And the part of Jacob that he was named for has got to be thinking, how did I lose this? Everything in my life up to this point, I've managed to, to get around it. I've managed to manipulate it and, and orchestrate it and, and be okay. And what, what happened? I've been beaten. Jacob knows I, this, there's too much at stake. I can't let this be the end of this match. This guy is obviously no normal person. So, so let me tell you what. I, I'm going to hold on to him. And I'm going to say to him, verse number 28, excuse me, 27, I will not let you go. The man said, let me go for the day is broken. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And Hosea tells us, and this is so beautiful, chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, Hosea tells us that when he said this to this man, he said it in tears. He's broken. I will not let you go. Until you bless me, I can't. I need help. 
And clearly, I, I'm not strong enough to do this on my own. I'm, and you can see him hanging there helplessly. He can't even stand up anymore. I will not let you go, whoever you are, until you bless me. And the man said, what is your name? And I don't know if that hits you the way that it hit me when I was studying this, but, well, that hit me hard. He knows his name, doesn't he? He knows why he got it. He knows he's been living up to it ever since. So when he says, Jacob, you know what he's really saying? He's really saying, I'm a cheater. I grab heels. I've been trying to grab yours all night, hoping to get out of this situation. I'm a deceiver. I have been my whole life. That's why they named me this, and it's followed me ever since. So he confesses through tears. And maybe he expects this, this stranger to say, you're right, you are, and it's time to face the music. That's not what he says. Look at what he says. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. I tell you what, I just beat the fire out of you, Jacob. But instead of punishing you more, Let me give you hope. Let me tell you that what you just did, you prevailed physically with me until I decided you wouldn't. But that's not where you really prevailed. You really prevailed when you realized you couldn't beat me and you were looking for something else. When you kept fighting, not physically, but spiritually. When you decided to grab hold of the right heel. Israel means fighter of God, contender. In other words, I'm going to stop letting you be known by all of the bad decisions you've made, all the times you've tried to to fix your own problems, because now you've come to me. Now you know who to contend with. And I'm going to change your name. And if you think that wasn't a big deal, you're wrong. It's a huge deal for somebody to give you a new identity, isn't it? To to be able to escape all of your past sins and and all of the things you've become known for and the person that you hate being. And this man says, I'm going to give you a new name. And, And when he gives him this name that means that you've striven with God, Jacob has a light bulb moment and he realizes who he's talking to. And you can almost see the light switch flip. And he says, please tell me your name. I think he's just trying to confirm what he already knows. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? I love that. Do you really need to ask? And he blessed him there. And listen to this. This is the reality. This is what Jacob has realized. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying, for I have seen who? I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. 
what happened here changed Jacob's life. He had been wrestling with so many different things. Finally, he gets to wrestle with the one who can change those things. And the sun rose up, verse 31, as he passed, Penuel, limping because of his hip. And I want you to imagine as, as he comes to the front of the pack, the Bible says that all of the family is marching toward Esau, and Jacob says, let me get up front. And with every painful limp, he's walking towards Esau, a new man with a new name and a new hope. And Jacob lifted up his eyes, chapter 33, verse 1. And looked, and behold, Esau was coming, 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. I've been told, Jacob might say, that you're going to bow to me, but that's over with. I've been wrestling with God and, and I've been humbled and I've been broken and now I bow to you seven times. Verse number four may be one of the most surprising verses in all of Scripture from a relational point of view. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Isn't that beautiful? And what do you imagine Jacob is or Israel is thinking as his brother is hugging him instead of choking him. Do you think Jacob is thinking, whew, it's a good thing I sent all those animals. It's a good thing I divided up my camp into two groups. No. Maybe for the first time in his life, he's thinking, it's a good thing I wrestled with God. It's a good thing I didn't give up. It's a good thing that, that I finally tapped into the part of me that can win a fight. Prayer and faith in God. We're all wrestlers, aren't we? I'm a wrestler, you're a wrestler. We all go through life wrestling with the things that we've done. Trying to rearrange those things, trying to avoid the consequences, trying to manipulate the situation, trying to get away with something, grab a heel. Get a leg up. Until like Jacob, at some point we find ourselves with nowhere else to turn and we, we have to face those things. And, and believe me when I tell you, God will tell you in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. You and I are not going to get away with anything, are we? We're not going to get away with anything that we do. There's going to be consequences. Can we be forgiven? Yes. But there's going to be consequences for every decision that you and I make. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Who are we going to wrestle with? You're going to wrestle with yourself. You're going to wrestle with the other people in your life that you're, you're trying to arrange just so, so that you can live the life you want to live. Or are you going to start wrestling with God? Because when we give up on our own abilities to change our 
past, when we give up on our own abilities to, to wrestle our way out of something that we deserve, then God can work. There's a song written several years ago called I Will Change Your Name. It's a worship song. It goes like this. I will change your name. You shall no longer be called wounded, outcast, lonely, or afraid. I will change your name. Your new name shall be confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one. Faithfulness, friend of God, one who seeks my face. God says to, to Jacob and he says to you and I, I know where you've been. I know what you're facing down. I will change your name. When you and I became Christians, do we realize that God changed our name? Do we realize as Colossians 3 and verse 3 says, that you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. Do you realize that when you stand before God in judgment, you will be glad that He doesn't see you? I have gone from Jeremy to Jesus. And if I hadn't, I'd be hopeless. Wouldn't matter how good of a wrestler I was, would it? I will change your name if you'll let me. Romans 6 verse 4, you will rise from the waters of baptism to walk in what? Newness of life. A new identity, a new purpose. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are wrestlers. What are you wrestling with this morning? Is it the right thing? Is it time to face God? Is it time to have your hip broken? We are wrestlers, but we are, as Christians, redeemed and bought back. Our name has been changed. We are Israel now. Are you? This morning, if you don't know Jesus and, and you've not obeyed the gospel, you need a name change because you are not capable of going up against Almighty God. You are not capable of facing down the consequences of your sin on your own. You will lose. But God does not stand before you as someone who wants to point that out. He wants to say, you will no longer be called lost. I've got a new name for you. If you're interested in learning more about that, or if you're ready to give your life to Christ this morning in faith, confession, repentance, and baptism, you can do that before you leave this building. But make sure that you realize what Jacob realized, that you need him. You need him. That you won't let go before you receive a blessing. If we can help you any way this morning, would you come as we stand and sing?